Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume number 13, issue number 39, corresponding with the week of September 11, 2023. This week, we're going to cover the maternal microbiome, part one, COVID vaccines, and then COVID and blood type A. The podcast corresponding with this newsletter is number 53 with Dr. Peter Unger. I encourage you to give it a listen. It's all about the history of teeth and why our teeth are not working out as well as they used to because of environmental decisions we're making that are not matched to our current realities. So something worth listening to if you're interested. Song of the Week is Brandy by Looking Glass. But let's get into maternal nutrition and the microbiome part one. This was a really tricky topic to drill down into one article, so I split it into two. So bear with me on this topic as it is so important in the grander scheme of maternal and child health. The microbiome, by definition, is the microorganisms that reside in a particular environment. If it's in the gut, it's called the gut microbiome, lung, lung microbiome. Pregnancy is a dynamic event where a woman's body changes radically, including epigenetically, hormonally, immunologically, and physiologically in order to conceive and carry a baby to term. Pregnancy has always been a scientific fascination because of these changes. Now we add the microbiome to the list, as it is the latest area of research that is shedding light on how pregnancy outcomes are determined. The maternal microbiome is defined as the community of organisms that inhabit a woman's mucosal and skin surfaces. These organisms are bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses. These opportunistic players affect us in ways previously thought impossible. The reality is that we think that appropriate microbiota is essential for a healthy environment of developing a child, pregnancy maintenance, and carrying to term and delivery. And then afterwards, the first years of a child's life. What dictates the hell of the gut microbiome and its importance in pregnancy? Is it necessary to have a microbiome set before conception? What is damaging to the microbiome? These are a few questions we need to look into. The gut microbiome, for the purposes of this article, will be simplified down to being primarily made up of trillions of bacteria that have the ability to help us or hurt us based on their type, volume, and balance. We live with them as much as they live with us. We supply each other with food sources and nutrients. The end result is a symbolic ecosystem within us. How is the maternal microbiome established? Here are two competing modern types. One, the pattern is associated with better health. The microbiome for mom was established at her birth with her passage through the vaginal canal and her subsequent exposure to the vaginal and rectal bacterial flora of her mother. Then mom further upgrades her microbiome by latching onto the breast to feed herself as an infant. Breast milk is the perfect food source for her bacteria as it is made up of greater than 10% non-digestible sugars called human milk oligosaccharides or HMO for short. Babies lack enzymes to break down these sugars, leaving them for the bacteria to have a party with. Over the next few years, mom's gut microbes will be shifted and established by the food that she eats, medicines and chemicals that she's exposed to, stress events, and much more. Or, on the flip side, this pattern is associated with worse health. The microbiome for mom was established again at birth with her passage through a C-section opening in her mother's abdomen and her subsequent exposure to the skin and gloves of the doctor and staff. Then mom further alters her microbiome by latching onto a bottle of cow's milk formula to feed. Formula milk is not the perfect food source for her bacteria, as it is not made up of these excellent non-digestible sugars and is not dynamic over time. 
Most formulas now only have three of these HMOs. Over the next few years, mom's gut microbes will be shifted and established by the food that she eats, the medicine she's exposed to, and chemicals that she's exposed to as well, as stress events and much more. Now that mom's microbiome has been established, she becomes the primary influence for her baby's microbiome. This process repeats itself through the generations from mom to child. If mom's microbiome is the main player in starting her baby on the right track, what else influences her microbiome? Here's a little aside on HMOs because of their importance. Breast milk provides over 220 milk oligosaccharides, HMOs, or small sugars that are indigestible by the human infant but are digestible by the infant's intestinal microbes. This is an incredible evolutionary task for a mother to use her energy that she consumes as food to make a food source for bacteria that is roughly 15% of the breast milk composition that is given to the baby. So again, mom's consuming food to produce an energy in her breast milk that is not utilized by the baby, but is utilized by the baby's bacteria. Crazy, wild stuff. The reason is clear. There is a profound symbiosis between humans and the intestinal microbiome bacteria. As discussed in the podcast with Dr. Shafazada, the specific intestinal microbes that are present in the intestines will dictate which HMOs are metabolized and thus conferring health benefits to the child. Breast milk is loaded with diverse HMOs and are giving a child the best health outcomes. Formula has recently received two HMOs and one now has three and another one has five out of the 220 in order to meet the scientific health understanding. Thus, with a lack of diversity, is it only a matter of time until we learn about all the missing benefits of the other HMOs in breast milk? The most critical long-term aspect shaping the gut microbiome over time after it is established at birth is the primary influence of diet. Study after study has shown us that the nutritional influences of diet dictate the biodiversity and health of the intestinal bacteria. Diets high in certain fats and sugars deplete anti-inflammatory bacteria, thin mucus layers, and promote an environment that is systemically inflammatory with all kinds of different gram-negative rod species that are more prone to releasing a lipopolysaccharide into the environment, a fat sugar molecule that comes from its cell wall debris that triggers inflammation in us. The critical player in the I want to feed my good gut bugs game over time is fiber, which is predominantly found in fruits, legumes, and vegetables, which happens to be the three things that kids are not eating a lot of. Maybe some are consuming fruits more, but in general, they're not eating a lot. When researchers looked at the human gut microbiomes and compared them across cultures, they found that increased microbial diversity, which correlates with better health, was predicted by a diet loaded with fiber and that the introduction of high volumes of animal meats, fat, and refined carbohydrates caused a dramatic shift in the bacteria toward a less diverse and dysfunctional type. So let's pause and do a little summary, and we're going to finish this one in the next audio cast. Mom has a gut microbiome that directly seeds her baby's microbiome, and that came from her mom. Okay, This microbiome dictates human long-term and short-term health. Eating a diet loaded with fiber-based fruits, vegetables, legumes will cause a highly diverse bacterial microbiome to exist as best it can based on what you were given from your mother. And this existence is correlated with better health. Biodiversity increases over time with the correct inputs will increase your health over time. And this is every ecosystem in the world. Biodiversity is associated with better outcomes. Okay, we'll finish that one next time. Section two, COVID vaccine moving forward for children. Still a lack of good quality data absolutely muddies the waters for recommendation. 
It's taken me a while to put pen to paper on this topic, as it has been missing so many pieces to make and take a concrete stance on where to stand. Frankly, it's quicksand. What do we do for children? Over the last year of Omicron-related variants, our clinic has dealt with zero, and I'm going to say that again, zero significant SARS-2 COVID cases. Thus, the yield on vaccination has to be looked at from the perspective of reduction of viral transmission to protect the vulnerable from a solid reason to vaccinate all children who have had a prior vaccine or more likely natural disease. Unfortunately, there's absolutely no good data that I am aware of that our current vaccine prevents meaningful transmission in humans. Severity reductions in at-risk individuals appears to be real and worthy of being in the calculus of vaccinating. Again, that's for those that are at risk, not for the population at large. So what do we need to know? The Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Are vaccines potentially in rare cases causing harm? Yes. Thus, to give a vaccine when the value is not there makes little sense to me in this day and age. If I can find better evidence, this may change. But right now, to me, the risk of giving a vaccine to a child who's had COVID naturally or had prior vaccine doesn't make much sense. As I've stated in the past, the vaccine is available and recommended from six months of age and onward. Furthermore, I am not against the vaccine at all for those who choose it and deem it beneficial. Choice in all things is critical to a healthy society. This is a discussion purely of the data or really lack thereof. My understanding today is that newborns and young SARS-2 immune naive children may benefit from a vaccine, although the reality remains in debate as Omicron is so incredibly mild in children of all ages. We have seen zero significantly sick Omicron-related cases in infants. My friends in the local pediatric intensive care units have confirmed the same. No serious ICU cases seen in a long time since the mutational shift from Delta to Omicron. Thus, that is the new phase we need to watch. If, it, if the, vaccine, or the virus shifts again to something more dangerous, we'll have to deal with that. Information when that time comes. The latest shift to pylora, or BA.2.86, from BA.2 Omicron, is a 30 mutation change in the spike protein that is very large shift, similar to Delta to Omicron shift. How this new variant plays out remains to be seen. Early data is showing nothing of interest. That is worrisome. There is some evidence reported that current vaccine can reduce the severity of illness and that is good for high-risk groups, although that still remains to be seen. In corresponding with Dr. Paul Offit this week, he notes that there are, has been no improvement in the ability to prevent transmission of the infection with the new vaccine that is monovalent based on the XBB.1.5 Omicron strain. The ancestral strains are completely out of the vaccine that is coming out this fall. Read the Scientific American paper by Tanya Lewis for a good synopsis of Paul Offit's take and many other experts. So thus again, we have to question scientifically the national narrative from the American Academy of Pediatrics and Senator, so the Center for Disease Control, which says vaccinate all children yearly. There's no scientific evidence to support this decision that I can find. Even my close friends at top U.S. medical schools are pro-vaccine for all ages without any reliable data to support this stance upon questioning. I await data to support these choices. I fear that this push to do so in the absence of good evidence increases vaccine hesitancy for diseases that really kill and make a difference in our clinic. We have to be a little more objective about this process that includes all parents' feelings around vaccine risk and reward. As clear data arrives, I will share it here first, and we can change our minds on a second of notice based on data that changes that reality. 
For anyone interested in looking at the data, you can see these that the AAP and CDC have made the decisions on by reading two MMWR papers that are in the pediatric newsletter link on SalisburyPediatrics.com. All the links are clickable to see the actual data. Recent evidence regarding the long-term risks of myocarditis events in young men is noting scarring of the heart muscle. We will look into this next week in the follow-up audio cast. But the past and current evidence leads me to believe that the vaccine in young men after puberty makes little sense at this stage of the SARS-2 pandemic cycle. So that's one group I would be actually against. For anyone with high-risk disease, states as delineated on the CDC and AAP websites, which I agree with, then yearly vaccination makes sense according to the data. As always, I present the current state of the reality for everyone to discuss with their provider of care and make appropriate decisions informed by the data presented over recent weeks here. This information is for your information only. This is not for me telling you which decision to make. I don't think that's appropriate of me to do. But presenting the data, I think, is completely appropriate for me to do. Discuss it with your individual provider and make decisions appropriately thereafter. Section 3, blood types and COVID risk. Earlier in the pandemic, it became clear that people with blood type A would get sick at a higher rate. Now we have a study in the journal Blood that looks deeper into this topic. They noted in the study that the receptor binding domain of the virus SARS-CoV-2 has a similar sequence to the ABO blood group binding region with human galactins, which are human binding domains on cells. SARS-CoV-2 will preferentially infect blood group A cells over other blood group antigens leading to increased infections in these individuals. The abstract is excellent. Quote, the receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2 which facilitates host cell engagement, bears significantly similarity to galactins, an ancient family of carbohydrate binding proteins. Because ABO, parentheses H, and parentheses blood group antigens are carbohydrates, we compare the glycan binding specificity of SARS-CoV-2 RBD, the receptor binding domain, with that of galactins. Similar to the binding profile of several galactins, the RBDs of SARS-CoV-2, including Delta and Omicron variants, exhibited specificity for blood group A. Not only did each receptor binding domain recognized blood group A in the glycan array format, but each SARS-CoV-2 virus also displayed a preferential affinity or ability to infect blood group A expressing cells. Pre-incubation of blood group A cells with blood group binding galactin specifically inhibited the blood group A enhancement of SARS-CoV-2 infection, whereas similar incubation with a galactin that does not recognize blood group antigens failed to impact SARS-CoV-2 infection. These results demonstrated that SARS-CoV-2 can engage blood group A, providing a direct link between ABO blood group expression and SARS-CoV-2 infection, end quote. That comes to us from Wu et al. 2023 in the journal Blood. So what does this mean? We have learned over the last few years that variations in ACE2 levels, blood group A expression, so if you have blood group A, which I do, galactin levels, and antibodies against interferons and other factors are likely to influence the overall risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection in a given population, which was a huge problem early in the pandemic with a SARS-2 naive population. Now, maybe not so much for the most of us. Those at risk, this actually still makes a difference. If you have antibodies against interferons, you have a harder time seeing the virus and dealing with it quickly. If you have blood group A, you're at more risk. If you have variations in ACE2 levels, you may be at more risk. There's a lot to be understood here over time. But again, this is just data. This is information for you to think about, learn about, know about. Again, Song of the Week is Brandy by Looking Glass, a good one. And there were a couple questions in the, in the newsletter 
to click on if you're interested. Are you blood group A? And did you get sick more often? And based on the new data, are you asking your children to have a COVID vaccine? And those answers will come in the coming weeks. Last piece, the central paradox of learning is the tension between tradition and innovation. Alison Gopnik, truly love that. It is so true. We are always struggling societally between teaching that which was taught in the past before and what is innovative. I lean heavily on birth to age five years being the time of exploration and observational child learning. No formal learning needed here. Kids learn a ton very quickly from parents and siblings as well as nature. K through 12 is a time to grind in fundamentals of learning and education while pushing new and innovative ways of learning and evolving. What a great way to live in this world. All right, folks, as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter audiocast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by or a physician and or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. The newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.